Please turn with me to Acts chapter 13 as we'll continue in this chapter. Acts 13. We'll begin at verse 13 this morning. As we'll be looking at Paul's sermon there in Antioch of Pisidia. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to the word, we pray that you would help us to understand it. Um, oftentimes, we want to read it. We want to read our own situations into it. We want to discover our own truth from it. But there is only one truth, and that is the truth of your salvation, that you gave your life for your people, that we might have life and have it to the full. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open up your word to us this morning, that we might experience that open our hearts and our minds, convict us of our sin, that we might better serve you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So one thing I thought about when I uh, read through this passage this morning, or this week, and uh, was studying this passage, was when I was a kid, I used to, you know, I'd eat cereal a lot, not just in the morning, but a lot of time. Would, would eat cereal, and the cereal eating uh, process, the ritual was to put the box in front of me, right there in front of me, and stare at it. Although I don't think anybody does that anymore. Maybe they still do. I don't know. Okay, apparently people still do that. But I did that. And there was always interesting things in the box. You know, there was all, on the back in particular. There was always some sort of fun thing to do, and a lot of times. It was one of these pictures that you saw, right? And it had a scene. And, but more importantly, there were little objects embedded in that scene. It was like, go find this and that in the scene, right? And you were supposed to find all these little pictures. Tony the Tiger would be playing baseball with his friends. But in the picture, there were things that were seemingly unrelated, like maybe an umbrella or a wheelbarrow or a hot dog, or a bird, or who knows what, was just embedded in this picture, and you were supposed to go find them. You could appreciate the picture for what it was. It was a picture of this tiger playing baseball with his human friends. But once you saw the umbrella, you couldn't unsee it. It was always there, right there, embedded, and you could never unsee that. The Old Testament is a lot like that, in that... We grow up with the stories of, say, Joseph and his uh, coat of many colors and with Moses crossing the Red Sea and, and David and Goliath. All of these are great stories in their own right. And someone tells you that these stories point to the Savior. And someone says, no, these stories point to Jesus. All of a sudden, you begin to see the entire Old Testament differently. Yes, the stories are still there. They're real stories about real people. But those stories were all orchestrated by God so that he could paint a picture of his coming Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Israel knew this. They were waiting for the Redeemer to come. And he did. And they missed him. Those Israelites who believed in him are now, as we read the book of Acts, preaching to those who didn't. And not only that, they're going out to the whole world. This wasn't just a story for Israel. 
This is a restorer of redemption for the whole world. And so in our text today, we have the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. He had preached before. We don't have those. And he definitely preached many, many after that. But this is our first recorded sermon. And it's a sermon that follows the pattern of those preached by Peter and Stephen already in the book that we've seen. This makes sense, right? Because up to this point, they had preached to primarily Jewish audiences. There are some nuanced differences between them. But for the most part, we're going to see a lot of similarities between the sermon that we read today and the one that Peter preached at Pentecost. This is a good thing. New teachings are usually bad teachings. One of the most striking things of the text today is the response that we're going to see from those who are in the synagogue. One that should cause us to take an inventory of our own interests, especially in the teachings of Scripture and God's redemptive plan. So with that, I'd like to consider three main sections of the text. The redemptive history of Israel, the kingdom of David's son, and the response of the people there. And so with that, let's look at the text. Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 13. Let's stand together as we read from God's holy word. Acts 13, starting at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. For this man's offering, <clears throat> for this man's offering, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those of you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried him out, all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. 
and we bring you the good news that what God promised to his fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come true, should or should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So quickly, just a little background of where we're at so far in the text. Remember, Paul and Barnabas were in Cyprus with John. This John is John Mark. And there they encountered some resistance. They were able to preach the gospel and saw the conversion of this Roman governor and others. Their stay there probably wasn't long. We get the idea that it wasn't very long. They headed to Perga in Pamphylia where you can visit the ruins there today. A lot of these cities that we hear about in this text are ruins today. In Perga, there's a giant stadium that probably seated over 10,000 people. Pretty incredible by those standards, not so much by today, but the fact that it's still around, pretty neat. For some reason at this point, John Mark leaves them. We don't know why, but it may come back later in the book. They continued on to Antioch, and this is a different Antioch than what we've seen so far. This one is in Pisidia, which is a region in western Turkey or Asia Minor. It would have been a major crossroads there for several of the Roman regions. It was a pretty major city by a lot of historical accounts, probably over 100,000 people. So very big. As was their custom, they made their first contacts in the synagogue, which they continued to do throughout their ministry. In the synagogue, it was common, just like we read from this text today, For them to read from the law, first five books of the Bible, from the prophets. And then they would ask someone with understanding, someone who had education, to rise up and speak on the text. Paul was this man on this day. He was an educated man, and he spoke of the Old Testament and preached Jesus to them. That brings us to the first point, the redemptive history of Israel. And so what Paul does at this point, as he stands up to preach... He basically goes through this simple history of Israel kind of survey. Again, we've seen something much like this before as we've read through this book. He starts with the delivery from Egypt, the wilderness wanderings. He even puts some years, some amount of time that went through this, the conquering 
of the seven nations to enter the promised land. He talked about the time of the judges and, and the last judge, Samuel the prophet, and how they asked for a king. And Saul was that king for a time. And then David was raised up as the king. And then he talks about how the king Jesus came from David. And John the Baptist was the man that kind of ushered him in. And all of this would have been very near and understandable for the Jewish audience. The idea, of course, for Paul is to point forward to Jesus, a Jew just like many of those in attendance that day. Paul even addresses them as such. There in verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. So he's trying to, to appeal to their their Jewishness, the fact that they are a part of this great redemptive history. He also addressed the God-fearing Gentiles there. He sums up all of Israel's history by saying this in verse 26. To us has been sent a message of this salvation. He even punctuates this by helping them to understand, saying, even your killing of Jesus was a part of God's plan to save his people as he tells the retells the story of how they had Jesus crucified and how he was raised from the dead. Verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So he's kind of cutting him low a little bit here. Hey, these things are read to you every single week. You don't get it, but you fulfilled the things that you read by killing Jesus. They're about him. They're about his death. They're about his resurrection. And he's now preaching good news to them. This Jesus, through belief in him, can offer them eternal life. I think for us today, a non-Jewish audience, we have to see ourselves here, again, not as Paul and Barnabas, preaching in the synagogue, but as the ones who struggle to see God's redemptive plan in the pages of Scripture. We teach Bible stories as a way to encourage our kids to behave oftentimes. Trust God just like Moses did. Or be brave just like David was. Or dare to be Daniel, whatever that means. And yes... We should do those things. We should teach them from those stories, absolutely. But we shouldn't forget that Moses doubted. Heavily, Moses doubted. David was afraid. Just read through the Psalms. It's about David being afraid. Daniel did not shut the mouths of the lions. The Lord did. What was the sin of Israel when it came to their faith? They forgot that their faith was not about them. They were sincere. They did everything right. But they forgot that their faith pointed to someone beyond themselves. And when he came, they could not see him. He lived among them. He was a Jew just like them. He attended all their feasts. And he said, look, these scriptures are about me. And they didn't see him. They had him killed instead. If we aren't careful, 
we too will buy into the idea that our faith is really about us. We'll make our testimony a series of stories about us instead of about Jesus. Our own redemptive stories will highlight our own faith rather than the works of Christ and His faith in us. It can happen very quickly, imperceptibly. One day you're praising God and praising the God of your salvation. And the next day you're just simply praising. Our faith has a foundation. It is Jesus Christ alone. Without Him, it's an empty faith shared by countless millions across the globe who believe in something. And may even genuinely be nice people. But they don't know Jesus. and He doesn't know them. I think particularly for our kids, for those of us who grew up in the faith, this is a key distinction. You can know the catechism backwards and forwards. Congratulations. You can be able to talk about the stories of the Bible. You can know them. You can be able to find Obadiah really quickly in your Bible. But if you don't know Jesus, all of that is useless information. Every bit of it. Your baptism means nothing unless you profess Jesus Christ with your mouth as Lord and then live like that's the truth. And if you think you can simply play the part, it will become more and more evident in your life until one day you're the only person that believes it. This admonition is not only for kids in this church, obviously, but for any of us who grew up in the church, at least nominally. We have we have always to ground our faith in Jesus Christ. Our profession must be 100% Christ alone. There is no other. The next then, the next point, the kingdom of David's son. Starting in verse 33, Paul quotes several times from the Old Testament. Verse 33, he quotes from Psalm 2. He even says this is written in the second psalm. There in verse 34, he quotes from Isaiah 55. In verse 35, he quotes from Psalm 16, which we read this morning. In verse 41, he he quotes Habakkuk, chapter 1. So he quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from the prophets. Why did he do this? What was his point? Well, he was talking about David, and he wanted them to know. If 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 you're a Jew and you're living in this time, David is like your claim to fame. Well, David was our king. Well, David was really just a shadow of the king that was to come. And the coming king would sit not only on the throne of Israel, but for the whole world. The whole world is the kingdom of Christ. The whole world is his footstool. He came to die to save his people. Look with me at verses 36 through 38. For David... After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. What does that mean? He, his body decayed. You can dig David up and you would find bones, maybe, dust, probably. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption because the grave could not keep him. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Not only would this coming king not be defeated by the corruption of death, 
but he would be able to forgive his people for their sins. The two great enemies of this life, sin and death. Every Jewish person there knew that would finally be defeated by the coming king, King Jesus. Forgiveness and salvation that he offers happens through belief in him alone. And look at verse 39. Carefully. This is a loaded, very loaded verse. And by him, everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is freed from those things that the law of Moses could not free you from. What are those things? Could it free you from sin? Could the law of Moses free you at all from sin? No. As we've been going through the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism in in worship, professing that, we have seen, I hope, that each one of those simple commandments are easily broken because our hearts easily go astray. It doesn't free us from sin. It shows us our sin more and more. Could the law free us from death? No. What did the law of Moses require over and over and over again for the people? Death. It required the killing of animals so that the people might have forgiveness. And even that was a shadow of the forgiveness that would come. Jesus' coming frees us from sin because he, being the God of the law, the giver of the law, came, fulfilled his law, He can forgive whom he chooses. It frees us from death because his death was a once for all sacrifice that not only satisfied the wrath of the the Father due to us because of our sin, but also paved the way for the forgiveness of our sin. Not once, but for forever. That's important. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to look at several verses here. I'm going to kind of sum up the first part of the chapter and read some of the second part. The first 10 verses there in Hebrews 10 talks about the purpose of the law. The law being a shadow, which is why sacrifices had to continually be offered. Those sacrifices weren't really able to offer forgiveness they had to continually be done and then how Christ was going to be that final sacrifice and so with that in mind look with me at verse 11 and following and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool of his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so what did Christ do? His offering, when he came... Once for all, the priest had to continually offer this offering for sins. Christ says no once 
and for all, and it's over. Imagine being a Jewish person and hearing this. The priest no longer is necessary. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, was once and for all. And so now that they've heard this, Paul gives them a warning there in verse 41 from Habakkuk 1.5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if someone tells you. This warning was used in that book to tell the Israelites that the Babylonians were about to attack them that the Lord was going to use the Babylonians as a way to judge his people. God was going to use a pagan people, a pagan government, to show his people their need for a savior. Perhaps that sounds familiar. Being God's people wasn't enough to save them. They had to believe in the promises that salvation wasn't about them, but about the promised one, Jesus Christ. Israel continually forgot this. Babylon had to come and remind them. And over and over again in Israel's history, it was necessary. Over and over again in our own history, our own lives, we need to be reminded. And so this warning is also for us. If we think that because we live in this country and have abundant material blessings that we're outside the reach of God's judgment. We're crazy. God will use whatever means necessary to turn his people to himself. This should cause us to live lives of repentance, to continually seek after his will in all that we do. This should also cause us to seek out his word, which more and more we should recognize as the only source of truth about his will. So again, imagine that you're an Israelite reading these words or hearing Paul preach these words. You've been a student of the Bible. You've heard the stories. You even know all the Sunday school answers. You know your catechism. You know the hymns. You might even take notes in church. But now, all of a sudden, everything that you knew comes to life because you've heard about Jesus. Those stories that used to be about acting right are now about him, the only one who could act right. What's your response going to be to that? It's a good question for us. Look with me then at the response of the people, verses 42 and 43. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Synagogue lets out. The people come up to Paul and Barnabas, and they're begging to be taught these things again next week in the same way. Please keep teaching us from the Scriptures. Please keep telling us about this freedom that we can have in Christ. What is our response after reading God's Word, after hearing God's Word? You don't hear me saying that every time you hear the preacher you should beg for more preaching. We might be here a little while if that were the case. But does God's Word leave you wanting more? 
their response has actually caused me to think quite a bit about God's Word, how I think about it leading up to Sundays, how I think about it after that. We come together every week and worship the Lord by singing His Word, by reciting His Word, preaching, hearing it preached. But are we begging for more after? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If we're honest, I don't think the goal that's the goal necessarily to be ones that are just like these Jewish people who had never heard the gospel before preached. But I think one thing does come from this. The Word of God is the grace of God put into words so that we can understand it. It is the stories of His manifest faithfulness and goodness to His covenant people. It is the balm for the weary soul that needs rest. It is an instruction for the believer, both young and old. We all need it. That we might know Him more. That we might serve Him more. It is the very words of life that should cause us to question what else are we begging for. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you more and more. Reread the stories of the Bible so that you might know, so that your children might hear about the faithfulness of God to send His Son that we, His people, might be saved. Let us be ones that beg for it that he may sustain us through it. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come to you this morning, we recognize many times we see your word as an obligation, something that we are tied to by obligation only, that as a Christian we should be reading your word. Lord, that's true. Help us to want to. Help us to want to understand more and more, just like these people in the text who are hearing about you for the first time. We want to be like that more and more. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us more, show us, convict us of our sin, that we might be closer to you, that we might serve you more, that we might grow together as one people who are actively seeking out how we might serve you, that we might that the world might know that you are Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.